Good morning, Crossbridge. It's good to be here with you in this beautiful, cold Miami morning. Uh, listen, uh, one of the shows on Netflix that Beth and I has enjoyed watching recently is the show Messiah. I don't know if you've seen the show Messiah. Uh, Messiah is, was created by the same creators of the Bible series and uh, some of the Chronicle or Narnia movies. Uh, these are movies that are based on C.S. Lewis's novels. Uh, but uh, Messiah uh, is about the coming of the Messiah in modern-day America. So they're asking the question, they're trying to uh, imagine what would it look like if the Messiah came today in our modern world with all the technology and, and all the political tensions and the religious tensions. Uh, as you would know, uh, the picture of the Messiah is a preeminent picture in uh, the three major world religions. In Islam, you have the picture of the El Masih, the promise of the coming of the El Masih. Uh, in Judaism, Messiah. And uh, in Christianity, we have the Christ. And if you didn't know this, uh, the Christ, the Christos is a translation. Christos is a translation from the Hebrew Messiah. We believe that Jesus is the Messiah that has come. And what I found brilliant, absolutely brilliant, about this series is because it has uh, recovered the tension and the confusion that existed in people's heads when Jesus came around. When Jesus comes around, people are trying to figure out who is this man? Who is this man? Some say that he is the reincarnation of a, a prophet of old. Some, some of them say that he is demon-possessed. He's an imposter. Some say he's actually the son of God. And the people that have seen or watched this series, even some close friends of ours from Crossbridge have had, have had like different opinions about it. I've had people say, I've loved it. You know, it's Jesus, right? It's talking about Jesus. And some said, no, that's the Antichrist. That's the coming of the Antichrist. And uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, we don't know because uh, the second season only comes out next year. And uh, I, I, I hated that. I hated that we have to wait like this long. My coach, my jujitsu coach, I go to the gym. He's like, Pastor, I'm so mad at that series. I was like, why? Because now I have to wait until 2021 to find out. But as we, as we watched in the bumper video uh, coming into the sermon, uh, the opinions about Jesus vary. You know, nowadays people will uh, say that he is an imposter and some uh, will believe uh, billions of people around the globe, that he is, in fact, the living son of God. Uh, when the gospel of John was being written, that was still the case. It's always been the case. And, in fact, in this dialogue that's recorded between Jesus and uh, some Jewish folk that had been interacting with him, the question comes up again. We didn't read the second portion of of the passage that we were supposed to, to read uh, for time's sake. But in, in verse 53, if you have a Bible or the Bible app open in front of you, uh, they asked Jesus the question, who do you make yourself out to be? Who is Jesus? I think that this is the crucial, the most important question that anyone should ask if they are in the path of exploring uh, all the world religions, exploring Christianity. This is a question that you must learn to interact with as you walk alongside others that will be asking this question. We should never start 
uh, talking about the credibility of Jesus and Christianity by peripheral, by going to the peripheral issues first. We should not talk about the disalignment that may exist between Christianity and science or the disalignment that exists between the message of Christianity and how some Christians lived or, or the ethics of Christianity. Don't go there. This is the question that matters most. Who is Jesus? And in order to answer this question today, is Jesus really the Son of God? Uh, we're going to ask three underlining questions. First, what did Jesus say about himself? What are the claims that Jesus made of himself? A lot of people nowadays, some sects of Christianity that claim to be sects of Christianity, which indeed are, I think, cults, will say that Jesus never claimed uh, divinity. Jesus never proclaim or make a proclamation that he was God. And uh, this passage is here to prove otherwise. So let's, let's look at the gospel accounts and ask, what did Jesus say about himself? Uh, secondly, let's ask the question, what did his contemporaries say about his claims? How did they respond to Jesus' claims? How did Jesus' contemporaries, the people that he did ministry with or he walked alongside, he lived with, how did they respond to his claims? And then lastly, why uh, is, is it knowing these two things important for us today? What are the practical implications of knowing what Jesus said to himself and how people responded to Jesus? Why is that important for us today? We'll draw some practical implications towards the end. Okay, good plan. All right, let's start with what did Jesus say about himself? And I wanted to draw your attention to John chapter 8 because I think that this is a pivotal chapter in the gospel of John. This is a very important chapter because it is here that Jesus makes the most astounding claim about his divinity to people. There's nowhere in the Gospels that Jesus makes as big of a claim about himself as he does here in John chapter 8. There are many other passages in the Bible that Jesus claims divinity. Uh, there are indirect ways while Jesus does that. Uh, in fact, John is trying to build a case for Jesus' divinity. He starts with a thesis. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14 in chapter 1, he says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then he gives us a few case studies of interactions that Jesus had with people where he talks about him being the living water and them having to be born again and then him being the bread of life. And then it comes here in chapter 8 and he says, now here's what Jesus truly said about himself. This is not just a snapshot of a moment that he had with somebody. This is not just about my thesis that I've started off with in my gospel account. John saying, now look, these are real words of Jesus. These are the things that he said about himself. But before Jesus makes this claim that he actually, right after he drops the mic, sort of, right? He couches it, he couches it with a statement in verse 31. Before dropping the mic after this big claim in verse 31, he says, hey, if you want to be my followers, you've got to trust my words. Look at what he says in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, this is a very famous verse, and the truth will set you free. It's sort of like your kids coming to you and saying, Dad, I'm going to ask you something, but you can't say no. <laughs> Have you ever experienced that? Because I'm going to tell you something, but you can't say no to what I'm going to ask you. And this is uh, the other side of the coin. Jesus is saying, I'm going to tell you something big, but before that, you have to believe everything I say. 
You have to believe my words. If you want to be a true follower, you have to believe my words. Because if you don't believe my words, you cannot experience the consequence of what I'm about to say, which is freedom. And then later on, he says eternal life. Experience eternal life. So you have to believe what I'm about to tell you. And, 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 and Jesus says, look, first of all, I want you to know that you are not free. And I've come to set you free. And, and then they say to Jesus, well, we are free. We're not under anyone's uh, slavery. And Jesus says, well, but you are a slave to sin, aren't you? And that type of freedom I can give you. Freedom from sin that everyone, including religious people, are under. He gives an illustration of the son and a servant and a household in order to get that point across. And Jesus says, you know, the reason why I can say that is because my words are aligned with the Father, with my Father. And my will is aligned with the Father. And if you believed my Father the way I believe my Father, if he was your Father, you would know that what I'm telling you is truth. But he is not your father. And they say, what do you mean? Abraham is your, our father. So that Abraham is not your father. Your father is the devil. Because the litmus test whether you have God as your father is whether you receive the truth that I bring you or, or not. And, you know, obviously they're now puzzled. Anger starts to build up inside of them. They're confused. And Jesus says, yeah, yeah. Abraham believed the words of God. In fact, Abraham, when God told him that I would come one day, I was there. He, he, he rejoiced. He was glad. Abraham was glad to know that I was coming. He said in verse 55, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad. And then they say to Jesus, you're not 50 year olds yet. You're not even 50 years old. You're in your 30s. And you're talking about being with Abraham. Abraham existed 2,500 years before Jesus. And he says, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I did not only, not only was I there, but I was there before Abraham. And then he drops the mic. He says in verse 58, truly, truly. When Jesus says truly, truly, is something utterly important. Not just truly, truly, truly. I'm going to tell you something that's core to who I am. In fact, in this passage, he says it three times. Truly, truly, you are a sinner. Truly, truly, I can give you eternal life. And then truly, truly, now listen to what I'm going to tell you. It's something big. He says, before Abraham, I was. Say, like, wait, did Jesus commit a grammatical mistake? Before Abraham, I was. No, this is intentional. He's not, he's not making a grammatical mistake here. He's making a big statement. He said, before Abraham existed, I existed. In fact, I created Abraham. I am the God that your parents have worshipped. When Jesus says, I am, he doesn't say, before Abraham, I was. He says, Abraham, I am, because that's the name of God that they were familiar with. Do you remember Exodus 3? Uh, at, when Moses was in uh, the wilderness, he had left Egypt after being raised in Egypt. He's now in the wilderness. He is uh, living his life as a shepherd. He works for his father-in-law. He had been there for 40 years. 
And God comes to Moses, and he speaks to Moses in a burning bush while he's going about his daily activities. And God um, challenges Moses to go back to Egypt, to the place that he ran away from because he had murdered and killed a man, to go back and to speak with Pharaoh, the most important person in the world back in those days, to let his whole labor force go. God says, hey, I, I want you to do this. I'm calling you and I'm capacitating you to do this. You know, obviously Moses is confused. He's trying to understand if that is really God speaking in that burning bush. Uh, God had told him to take his sandals off his feet because the, the place where he was stepping, it was, a whole, it was holy. It was holy ground. And it took him a while to get that, but, you know, uh, he's putting, like, limitations. says, I can't even speak. I can't even talk. And he says, don't worry about it. I'm going to give you the words, the necessary words for you to speak with Pharaoh. And then he finally agrees to that, and he says, okay, I'll do it. But when I go to my people, when I go back to the Israelites, when I go down there and, and I tell them that you have spoken with me, and they ask, who spoke with you, who should I say? That's what we read in Exodus 3, 13, 14. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. You know what Jesus is saying? <laughs> it's shocking. He's saying, do you know the God that you guys go into the synagogue every Sabbath to worship? Do you know the God that spoke with uh, Moses in the burning burst after uh, sending him into Egypt and delivering the people from slavery? That's me. <laughs> Do you know the God that visited Abraham in his tent and broke bread with him with a couple of angels? You know who that was? You're, ta- you're, you're looking at him right now. This is the biggest claim that anyone could have made about their divinity. And Jesus makes that claim. He says, I am Yahweh. I, you, know, you know the name that when you are reading your scriptures, you have to substitute that name for Adonai because you're so afraid of pronouncing that name and using that name in vain. That is my name. I am Yahweh. So to those crazy people that knock on your door saying that Jesus never claimed to be God, it's right here. There's no greater claim than this. He is God. He said it very clearly. And so how did the people, when they heard that, respond to it? First they said to Jesus in verse uh, 51, actually in verse 48, you're, you're for sure a Samaritan. Like a Samaritan was an impure Jew, like a lower class Jew. And Jesus doesn't even bother with that because, you know, he has come for everybody. He's not offended at that. But then they say, you're clearly demon-possessed. We, um, we read in verse 48, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? The claims that you're making are blasphemous. Only Satan would say these things. He is the main deceiver. You're saying to us that our father is the devil because we don't believe in you. No, you are demon-possessed. You are speaking on behalf of the devil because this is blasphemous. And they're so angry. And we read in verse 59, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. 
Why? Because the law said that, you know, to statements like these, these were blasphemous statements. This is, a, this is breaking one of the Ten Commandments. Like, you have to punish someone like that with death. And so they're angry. They have this murderous death towards Jesus, which is very interesting because when we read the gospel accounts, there's only really two responses that people have of Jesus. There's only two ways that people respond when they hear Jesus making these claims. People are never on the fence. And even if they're on the fence, Jesus makes sure that they get off the fence really quickly. You know, I find it interesting here in this passage, verse 31, uh, the first verse that we read, I don't know if you picked this up, but it starts with, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. These are not people that were looking out to kill him originally. These are not people that uh, wanted to debate with him. In fact, in verse 30, the previous verse, we read, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So these were people that enjoyed his teachings. These were people that um, had observed him perform some miracles, healing, uh, you know, the sick and the lay. And, 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 and so they're attracted to Jesus. They're following him. They probably wouldn't have said that he was God or the son of God, but they for sure believed that God was at work through him. They were attracted to him. And he is making them make a decision. He's saying, if you want to be my followers, everything that I say has to be taken in and accepted and lived out. There's no middle of the road with me. When you read the gospel accounts, you don't have people saying about Jesus, hey, well, man, this is a great prophet and what a great teacher, very inspiring you know, I think I can apply his teachings into my life. I don't think he's God, but man, I would love just to, to, to learn more about him. He's just beautiful. There's no such opinions in the gospel accounts. The people that sort of have a hint of that, he just says, you know, get off the fence right away. And so you have people like this that we read here in this chapter that are murderously angry towards him. You know, these people that started off attracted to him, now are murderously angry. What did it? Why did they shift? What is anger? Anger is a natural sentiment that we all have when something that we love dearly is under siege, it's threatened, it's under attack. And so we respond in anger. Anger is really close to love. And in fact, I'll say this to you, that to the degree of anger that you experience, you know how much you love something. So if somebody yells at your kids, somebody that you don't know, a stranger out in the streets, will you be angry? Will you be very angry? Why? Because you love your children. You love your children very much. If somebody does something in your office or within your company that jeopardizes a promotion, or your ascension in your career field, will you get angry at that person? Will you have murderous anger towards that person? Absolutely. I'm going to kill him. I can't believe they bypassed me or they did that or they jeopardized my career because you love it. Like if you are driving down US-1 and somebody cuts in front of you, does that make you angry? Of course that makes you angry. 
But Lewis was telling me as we were driving on US1, he says, man, on US1, I drive with one hand on the steering wheel and with the other one right here, just ready to honk. <laughs> Did you say that? <laughs> That's how I drive on US1, right, like this. That's me right here. Why? Because... Because you, 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 you don't want to be late, right? Well, no, that's not true in Miami. <laughs> but, but, but you love your life. You, you, don't, you don't want to die in a car accident. You love your car. You don't want to have to take it to the shop, right? So, so you get angry. You're offended. Why are they angry here at Jesus? Why are they picking up stones to kill him? Obviously, he had committed a grave sin of blasphemy. But the reason why they're doing this is that they know that if he is who he said he was, they can't just treat him as they've been treating him that long. They can't just take the middle road. They have to drop down on their knees and they have to worship him as God. They have to be willing to suffer the rejection of their friends. They have to be willing to do away with their religion. They have to give up their freedom. They do not want to give up their freedom. They have to worship him if he is who he said he was. And so they're angry. They're deeply, not just disappointed, but offended at that statement that he had made. That's the, obviously the second reaction that we find in the gospel accounts. People are either getting angry at Jesus, murderously angry. And that's why Jesus ends up dying on the cross, right? It's because they had enough of his blasphemous claims. But then you have the response of others that hear that and uh, for a season they're on the fence but they end up dropping down to their knees and worship him. You know, with Jesus, again, there's no middle of the road. He will not allow that to happen and take place. You either are angry at him or you affirm his divinity and worship him and devote your life to him. It's what we read in Matthew 16. When Jesus now asks the question to the disciples, he throws at them. He says, you know, a lot of people have different opinions about me. I'm a controversial figure, obviously, but who do you say that I am? And one of the disciples say, well, maybe you're the reincarnation of Elijah or, or, or Jeremiah. You know, some we know, like we read here, say that he is speaking on behalf of Belzebus, who is the chief of the demons. But Peter stands up and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are a Messiah, son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon. He doesn't even call him Peter yet because that's what he's about to call him. But he says, blessed are you, Simon, because flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my father who is in heaven. You know, C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity, he makes that statement. He makes that point against that majority opinion that people have of Jesus nowadays. No, he was not crazy. He's not demonic, which would be a lot more consistent if you don't believe he's God. He says Jesus did not afford anyone to make that type of conclusion. He says either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Which leads us to our last question. Why is that important for us to know? Why is that important for us to know what Jesus said about himself and the response that people gave of his claims? Because he is also trying to push you out of the fence. 
because he will not afford you the comfort of staying on the fence. By the way, the fence is never comfortable. Why else is he talking in these terms? Why else do we have these scriptures? It's because this question is now thrown at us. Who do you say that he is? You can't stay on the fence. You either stand up and walk away or you fall down on your knees. You can't squat forever. You know, this is very uncomfortable. Try squatting here for five minutes. The squat challenge. You can't squat forever. You either stand up, you walk away, you fall down on your knees. You either give him everything or nothing at all. And one of the most amazing things as we try to apply this truth to our American context is the majority of Americans are middle class and we take that into our faith as well. We have this middle class type of Christianity that we live out. You know, the question of the beginning of the passage, uh, do you want to be my followers? My words have to abide in you. In other words, they have to become part of you. You have to become one with my word. And we Americans, we only want to follow Jesus up to a certain point. When it's uncomfortable, when it goes against some of the things that we like to do, our practices, our behaviors, when it challenges our lack of generosity, when it challenges our lack of forgiveness, like, oh, that part, no, I'll follow you up to this point. I'll follow you to level three, but level four onward, that's for the pastors. And Jesus is saying, you either take all of me or you reject all of me. You can't take half of me. But the encouraging thing that we read here, that we find here is that we have more evidence to believe in him as the son of God than they had back then. We have more. Uh, First of all, we have the end of the movie. We have season two or three, however many seasons it takes. But uh, the Gospel of John doesn't stop in chapter 8. It stops in chapter 21. We have the whole story. And what we learn as we continue to read the Gospel of John is uh, that uh, the reason why Jesus can say, I can truly set you free and I can really give you eternal life if you believe in my words, is because he was willing to lose his freedom so that you can have freedom. He let go of his life so that you could have eternal life. On the cross, he gave up his life for you. And by believing in him, you can be free of the opinions of others. You can be free of anyone else's expectations. You are free from the burden of trying to prove yourself before others and before God. You have God's unconditional love because of that which Jesus has done. The gospel tells us that later on, the gospel of John. And then we know that that is secured on our behalf because on the third day, Jesus walked out of the grave as the full assurance that his work of covering for our sins and securing our salvation had been done. It is finished. Here is the resurrected Christ as an evidence of that for you and for me. And then I know that the resurrection is the ultimate, is the ultimate statement about Jesus' divinity. Because that's how we saw God in the flesh, ultimately, a God that had conquered death and hell. And I know some people have a big trouble with with the historicity of the resurrection of Christ. And they would come and they will say things like, oh, um, yeah, that's a myth that's present in other religions. But if you are a literary critic, you know that, and all literary critics, even the non-Christians or the atheists will tell you that that's not how myths were written. 
the gospel accounts. It's not how myths were written. For instance, uh, the first witnesses of the resurrection were women. Why else would you put women, if this is a myth, why else would you put women as the main witnesses of the resurrection? Their testimony was not credible back then. You can, you can take a woman into court and say, trust the testimony of this woman. It was completely discredited. Women was, were considered emotional. Women were uh, uh, considered unstable. Their testimony did not hold water in court. And therefore, the only reason why the gospel accounts were written that way and that women were the first witnesses of the resurrection is because, in fact, it was probably true. And some people say, no, well, uh, it was probably a lie. Uh, I heard people say, no, it was a lie. Like, like the disciples, they stole the body of Christ and they invented this story about them seeing and being with the resurrected Christ for uh, 40 days after his death in order to build a winning case for themselves. They wanted to take advantage of the followers of Jesus that were now being dispersed. They wanted to uh, build a stage, a platform for themselves. They did it for power reasons, like Nietzsche would say, like John Fulton. Foucault would say as well, they, Michel Foucault would say, they, he, they, they did it for power reasons. Yeah, except that you forget the fact that they all died for that lie, that they knew that was a lie. All the followers of Jesus, all the disciples of Jesus, they died horrible deaths because they held to this truth to the very end, that Jesus was the son of God. He was the risen son of God. You know, you would think that, uh, uh, you know, they wouldn't be willing to die for a lie that they knew there was a lie. Yeah, you know, John and I and, and Peter and, and James, we had this idea in this upper room and said, hey man, what if we took advantage of the people that are all hungry and thirsty because Jesus is no longer in the scene? What if we made up this story? They would have said, no, that story we made up, guys. I mean, I'm, I love my life. Let me continue to live my life and be back to my family, right? But they died horrible deaths because of it. Some say, well, no, uh, I think what happened was they, uh, they misunderstood uh, the events that took place in that day. In fact, Jesus wasn't really dead. He was almost dead. And, uh, and then they put him in the grave and then he was revived and he started walking around. People started to attribute that to his resurrection, but he was never really dead. No, there was really Roman, there was true Roman protocol for crucifixions. The text tells us that the Roman centurions, they went out there and they tested and they touched the body and they did perform tests. They, they threw a spear on his side, water came out, said, this guy is truly dead. Pull him out of the cross and then they put him in the grave. They sealed that grave with a stone and a Roman seal on it. Real protocol that they followed. And they put guards actually in front of the grave because they knew that something dangerous could happen with Jesus' followers. They could have stolen the body. So uh, the gospel accounts make sure that uh, we know that centurions were placed uh, by the grave. And can you imagine how ridiculous this is if Jesus, they thought that Jesus was dead, he was actually not really dead. In the middle of the night with the coolness of the grave, he wakes up and he's like, oh man, I thought I had died almost, man. That was really close. And then after being crucified for hours, he rolls away that stone. Ah, and he tells the soldiers, hey guys, how much you guys want to let me loose? Bribed him. And then he left and he shows up to the disciples. Hey dudes, uh, I thought I was dead. Um, I'm not, I didn't really die. Look, I'm, I'm really beat up. I need some medical care, all right? And then he was with them for about 10 days, recovered. And then he started walking around. Oh, I'm, I've been raised from the dead. That's so ridiculous. And on top of that, on top of that, Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 that only about a decade later, there were still over 500 witnesses that were still alive. He says, oh, you can go to their houses. You can go ask them. You can talk to them. 
They met Jesus. They saw Jesus. They touched Jesus. They ate with Jesus. They're still around. You can go ask them. And then all of the lives that have been, the lives that have been transformed by the power of Jesus since then. Liars, misfits, prostitutes, tax collectors, drug addicts, righteous, religious people. Some of you have experienced this power into your life. Some of you have had this Christ transform your lives, turn your lives upside down. You're a living testament and a living proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And unless Jesus had risen from the dead, your life would have never changed. But it has because of the power of the gospel, the power of the resurrection that has gone into your life. So it must be true. And let me tell you more. Why wouldn't you want this to be true? (laughs) You want this to be true. It's the only way to live life with true hope. That everything sad, like the Lord of the Rings says, right, one day will prove untrue. That Jesus will redeem this broken world. That our bodies will be raised from the grave. That all wrongs will be made right. And justice will reign again. Why wouldn't you want this to be true? It is true. It is true. And for some of you, you will come up in a little while and you'll drink of this cup and you eat of this bread and you will taste and see that it is in fact true. Will you pray with me? Father, we are grateful because you have been merciful to us. Father, your son who is one with you, who shares in your essence, who shares in your powers, who shares with you sovereignty. A couple thousand years ago, he took on flesh and he became like us to rescue and to redeem and to heal. And Father, some of us are witnesses of that power that was unleashed into the world. We have experienced freedom. We have experienced eternal life now in the present. This is not a promise for the future, but it's the future coming in the present. It's available to us now. And, and so we're thankful for that. But I pray also for those who are here today who have never come to grips with this reality. Those who are searching, those who are exploring, those who are asking questions. Father, I pray that you would reveal yourself in a big way to them today. Father, that you would push them out of the fence. And Father, that they would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That they wouldn't run away or they would keep on squatting, but they would fall down on their knees. Maybe today for the very first time. Uh, Father, uh, is it that important? And not only do some of us care about that, but you do care about that. It is your desire that all men will come to know Jesus. Read that in 1 Timothy. And so we pray that will be a reality for many today. And for those who uh, we have the opportunity to exercise some sort of influence in their lives, use us so that it would come to the living knowledge of Jesus Christ. Father, do what you have come to do. Set men free. In Jesus' name we pray.